Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas. We've got a special treat for you today. Janet Ward is with us. Say hello, Janet. Greetings. How's everybody? All right. Well, it's great to have you. Janet founded the Ward Black Law Firm in Greensboro, North Carolina, but I don't want to give away too much of the story. So let's get it from Janet herself. Janet, tell us a little about where you grew up. So I grew up in Kannapolis, North Carolina, which is a little bit north of Charlotte. It was the home of Cannon Mills, where they made sheets and towels. So if you've ever seen a cannon on your sheet or towel, that's my hometown. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, so it sounds like really you've stayed around the North Carolina area most of your life. So what was your family like growing up? So my father grew up during the Depression, and he wasn't able to go to college. And He and his sisters had to figure out how to make a living. So he eventually moved to Washington, D.C. and uh, started working at People's Drugs, just sweeping up there. And um, he ended up coming back to Kannapolis and he and his brothers started some drugstores. And so they had a small chain of drugstores called Baxter's Drugs and Black's Drugs. And so he, his first wife died when my brother was 11 and he met my mother at my brother's PTA meeting. (laughs) <laughs> and they got married. And so I was the only child of that union. And my mother taught public school for 30 years. So you know how every high school has the really tough English teacher? Uh-oh. That was my mother. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I can only imagine your associates and the briefs they have to write and the English correction that is inevitable from your Absolutely. genetic Well, nurture versus nature. There's probably both in you, the English. Exactly. I've got my red pen that I correct everything. They make fun of me. I can't even write a two-line letter without having two or three revisions of it. Well, okay. I am also the child of an English teacher, so I know what that life is like. And there is not much tolerance for poor grades, shall we say. Was that the case for you? No, oddly, I didn't feel a lot of pressure from her. Yeah. The problem was when I was in the high school where she was teaching, she would find out my grades before I did. And that was not all that much fun. But I think I kind of had it more inborn into me that I just needed to do as well as I possibly could. Yeah. Okay. So now you go off to college in North Carolina, right? Tell us about that. So I ended up with a chemistry scholarship to Davidson Mm. College which is outside of Charlotte, unfortunately placed out of all freshman biology and hit organic chemistry my first year at Davidson. That ended my plan to be a doctor. (laughs) And I didn't know what to do. My dad had always said, I want you to have a job where you never have to ask anybody for a job. Mm. Well, I knew doctors didn't have to ask anybody for a job. And I said, hmm, wonder who else? Oh, lawyers. I think I'll be a lawyer. And so that was the intellectual rigor with which I made the decision that I was going to go to law school. Fortunately, it turned out okay. Now, wait. Okay. So we start in biology. I don't know many lawyers. Well, maybe in a certain, you know, in in the biochemical world or something like that, but not many people start out in that. So what did you switch to? I just have to ask. What major? Economics. Okay. Economics. Yeah. So pretty big switch. 
Yes, it was. It was sobering because, I mean, from the time I was like four years old, I'd planned to be a doctor. You know, people wow. would give me jars of right. to dissect for Christmas. And it was quite a change. But now with the kind of law I practice, I actually read medical records almost all day long. That's so that true. science love that I have has paid off, actually. OK, so take us through this. So we, we get through Davidson. It sounds like when you made that change in economics, you kind of had an idea about that new path. Is well, I had a I had a kind of an interesting interlude that you may not know about. Okay. So over my my freshman, actually my junior spring break, my father died unexpectedly. Oh. And at that time, I was Miss Charlotte Mecklenburg. Mm. And three months later, I competed at Miss North Carolina, and I ended up winning Miss North Carolina, and then competing at Miss America in September of that year. So classical piano was my talent, and that kind of made me start thinking a little more seriously about the sort of law I wanted to practice and kind of set me on the legal path even more strongly. So did you have to take a year off from school to I did to fulfill your duties and all of those yes. kind of things? And with wonderful things like going to parades and the Strawberry Festival and the Azalea Festival and great North Carolina events. And I loved every minute of it. Did I got you? to see the, every square foot, it felt like, of North Carolina. And it was just a wonderful experience. Now, that sounds like something that only an extrovert could love. Is, is this true? So it, do you? Oh, no. No? No, I, I'm a forced extrovert. Okay. I'm very much an introvert. But when I have a job to do, I can be an extrovert. Okay. Okay. But you're not afraid, obviously, to engage in, in you know, when you need to be right out there. Exactly. Well, that was probably good practice. I mean, what are some of the things you learned from that experience? That's something very unique that very few people go through. Well, just being having to meet new people all the time. Yeah. Having to be in sort of a setting where you're doing public speaking. Yeah. And that was something, oddly, I was very afraid of public speaking. I, you know, it's very odd that I turned into being a trial lawyer since public speaking was not my favorite thing, but it kind of pushed me out into that realm and was just a wonderful learning experience. And frankly, you know, that was a good long time ago when there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of grief counseling and the like. Mm. So it was a wonderful thing, wonderful diversion for that sort of unexpected loss of my father to both my mother and me. That makes sense. Mm. That makes sense. Okay, so now we go off to law school, right? Where does that take you? So I ended up at Duke. Yeah. I chose Duke based on the size of the parking lot. <laughs> I do not recommend that people choose law schools based on the size of the parking lot, but it had this great big huge gravel lot, and I thought that would be great and really convenient to be able to park easily and go to law school. I wanted to make absolutely sure that there was one kind of lawyer I was not, I did not want to be a trial lawyer because, as I said, I was afraid to speak in public. And so I got through three years at Duke and passed the bar and had a hard time finding a job. And a little small law firm in Charlotte, two lawyers hired me and I started doing what I thought I wanted to do, which was sort of business legal support. And I found out that I hated every minute of it. And that it really was not, you know, I didn't care much about page 12 and where the comma was and adding yeah. an extra and in there. And I found out that there was an assistant DA's job in Concord and Kannapolis outside of Charlotte. And I asked the elected DA if he would take a chance on me. And I became the first, and I use air quotes here, girl 
DA in that community. And I did that for three and a half years. And that got me over my fear of public speaking, being in court all day, day in and day All out. day, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. And meeting lots of new people. As, yes. As, uh, Very interesting new people. Too. <laughs> it, that have gotten themselves into interesting situations, perhaps. Yes. And, you know, it, I was living in a small town. And the problem is, if you're the DA and you're prosecuting criminal cases, you have victims who have testified. And then you have the people who are charged. But if you end up at the supermarket, you never know, was that person a victim or was that person one of the defendants that you just They look familiar, to? but which side <laughs> were right. they on? Let me just be nice to them. No, hey, no. Good <laughs> policy. Good policy. Wow. That is very unique. Okay. And so now after the DA job, where, where do you head? So one of my adversaries came and hired me. She, she and I had become friends, even though we were on opposite sides. She was defending capital cases and I was prosecuting cases. And she said, we're getting ready to start an asbestos practice. And we would like for you to come work for us. And I will, we will offer you $10,000 more than you're making. Well, given the fact that I was making $20,000 a year, I thought that sounded like a really good idea. 50% even though I didn't increase. Know, I, it's like huge. Yeah. But I didn't know what asbestos was at the time. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of a baptism by fire. But over time, over the last 30 years now, I've continued to do asbestos litigation and other kind of products that are problematic to cause injuries for people. And I just loved it. It was a great way to help just good people. Most of the folks that we represented, say, worked like in a power plant and they may have come down with cancer or other kinds of diseases. And they were just good, hardworking, predominantly men that just wanted to look after their families. So it was a great group of clients to get to represent. And so that kind of experience has continued, right? Did you, how long did you stay at that firm? At that firm, I was there about three and a half years. Okay. And then I moved to the location I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina now. Okay. And did you start this firm at that point or what was the beginning? I came in where there were two lawyers who were running it. And over time I became one of the partners. And then it ended up where I was 50-50 partners with one of the lawyers Uh, That ended 17 years ago, and it has been my firm in the last 17. And how many staff and lawyers do you have now? We have about 25 people. Okay. And now, for those like me that don't know a ton about your profession, how often do these cases actually go to court? You know, I mean, we we always hear about things settling a lot. So I know... Yes. Most people, when I hear trial lawyer, they kind of want to be in there trying the case, but it sort of takes two to tango, I suppose. So do most of them settle or do you spend a lot of time in the the courtroom? Well, I hope I can give comfort to every business owner who's listening to this. (laughs) You know, it has been the case for over 15 years in the United States that 99 percent of litigation settles without trial. And so now it is, and and that's generally the right way for things to turn out. Yeah. My little tiny client doesn't want to bet on 12 people that don't know anything about him or her. Same thing, the insurance company or whoever's defending the case on the other side. You don't want to put it in the hands of people you don't know if you can figure out a good way to sort of meet in the middle and resolve it. Also, it's much more inexpensive way to resolve cases most of the time, and it gives you that certainty that people want. 
Well, you know, as you pointed out, it's mostly business people listening to this podcast and so, and, and owners. So, you know, I think we all love our own lawyers. There's just, it's just the other side that we yes. find slightly <laughs> less appealing, shall we say. Well, e- but, e- even I find some of us less appealing, so it's okay. <laughs> now, one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record on the podcast today was we're both in professional services, a lawyer, and we're in the financial advisory business. And, you know, I spent 25 years at the big firms and I was always sort of promoting these big public companies to, you know, increase the generosity and that sort of thing. And to put it mildly, I met with a bit of resistance to my radical ideas, at least the percentages that I was suggesting were a little more than what they were comfortable with. And now you've done something very unique in professional services, now having your own firm. Tell, tell us about uh, sort of the generosity in your business. Well, well, let me talk about how, how difficult it was to start. Yes. Remember I mentioned that I had a 50-50 partner? Yes. Let me give a little more business advice to owners. Never have a 50-50 partner. Yeah. You know, because if if it becomes a stalemate if you're not able to 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 be of one accord. And so I I I loved my my law partner, but it just came to the point where we needed to 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 separate. Uh and what ended up happening was we went to arbitration, also very expensive, very difficult uh, to try to work things out, but it ended up that all of the cases all of the staff and all of the obligations landed on me. And I remember bringing the staff into our conference room the day after we got the arbitration award, and I tried to sit up straight and say, we're going to make it. But the truth was, I didn't have any idea how we were going to. And the first few years were extremely difficult. You know, I didn't take a dime. I sewed everything I had back into the business to make sure that our staff, because many of our staff are of long standing, that they didn't miss anything. And so it's really remarkable, frankly, that we're even here 17 years later. Wow. And many of our staff have worked here for more than 20 years. So we have some remarkable longevity. I mean, I have people who have walked, who walked that day through with me. So we, so we had struggles because of the type of law we do. We're a contingency firm. Yeah. So we do not bill by the hour. So we didn't have, you know, we don't have invoices. We don't have somebody, an expectation of if we work right. this many Recurring hours. income. Exactly. No recurring so income. It's more of, do you choose the right kind of case that's ultimately going to resolve favorably? And frankly, you have to invest in it. That's exactly right. Because you're paying for the staff ahead of time. Right. You're paying for the costs. So the ability to predict on the revenue side is almost impossible. Yeah. You can predict your expenses, but you can't predict <laughs> yeah. the revenue. Yeah. So some really wonderful things happened right after, and I feel very clearly that the Lord, you know, led me to to break away from my partner. And we can talk about that if if we have time. But I never expected to be a business owner. It wasn't my plan. People don't go to Duke Law School to own their own law firm. You know, the expectation is you become part of some large infrastructure, but that was not what the plan was for me. And so I end up in this place where I don't know how to run a business. I don't know about paying people's salaries. I don't know how to do, you know, tax withholding. I don't care about the copier machine. You know, it was 
all of a sudden, a whole set of skills that I had to adopt and learn. And, and two things happened to me that were just magnificent. Three, I guess. One was at the exact same time, the past presidents of the North Carolina Bar Association came and chose me to be the incoming president-elect of the Bar Association. So that was a kind of wild happening. Then my, the, the person who my sort of chief operating officer quit. I thought I was going to die. And then I ended up replacing him with someone who has continued to be our, my chief operating officer for 15 years, who's trained as an engineer. She was Lean Six Sigma certified. And so everything that she knew about processes and procedures and documentation and Excel that I did not know, <laughs> she was able to put into play. And then lastly, I saw an ad in a magazine that said something about C12, this group of Christian business owners. And, and I'm like, wow, well, if they're Christian business owners, maybe I could join that group and try to learn how to run a business. Makes sense. Because I didn't have a plan to. It wasn't like this, you know, this great 15-year run-up to this. It just sort of happened to yeah. me. So it was kind of an inauspicious start. Well, you're the accidental business owner, and but I love it. And so, okay, now I had a similar experience in that the only reason we started this was God told us to. I was very happily working at a at a big shop with all the golden handcuffs, and so I joined C12 for almost the exact same reason. I said, "I'm 48 okay. years old now. I have this business. I haven't the least idea, okay, how to how to run this thing." And actually. For me, I hope it's been like this for you, but everybody has their own experience. But for me, one of the benefits of that group was, you know, I kind of quickly got onto a little track and it, I, I had a COO who also <laughs> helped a lot. But but really what came out of that for me were a bunch of great relationships. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I've enjoyed the relationships as much as the sort of business content, if you will. What was it like for you in that experience? Well, originally I was thinking, what are these? What are, it was all men at the time. Right. It actually was for 15 years. What are these guys going to be able to, to help me with on running a law firm? You know what? Right. I, I just thought it was not going to necessarily help. And you can imagine how thrilled they were to have a personal injury lawyer joining their group and a woman. But oddly, they have come around after the last <laughs> 17 Good years. Good for them. But what I figured out was all of us as business owners, we're trying to do three predominant things, increase revenue, decrease expenses, and keep our staff from killing each other. <laughs> and, you know, it really, no matter what their, the business was, it really kind of boiled down to that. So it was tremendous for me to sort of have that monthly meeting with C12 where I have continued to learn business skills that helped me as an entrepreneur that I did would have would have never had any other context to be able to learn in that fashion and as easily and also systematically having to show up one day a, a month being in a room talking about hard issues hearing other people's hard issues or their great ideas and then adopting them and i can assure you i have taken on more ideas from our c12 members that we've you know that we now just love that we do here i think that's you know, it's a lonely thing to to run your own company. 
And I think just the camaraderie of it. And like you said, being able to pluck those best ideas and, and maybe there isn't, there isn't one every month, I would say necessarily, maybe little things, but to be able to occasionally have that aha moment, don't you? Where you're just like, Oh, that's simple. Let's go do that. Absolutely. So it is Uh, that. Yeah, go ahead. That's what I was going to say. No, what are a couple gonna, of those? Yeah, I, I would. I can give you. I can give you a couple of examples. We Columbia Forest Products, which is a multi-billion-dollar corporation, is the the head of sales was in in my C twelve group, mm. and he talked about how they actually did family portraits for each of their members and had them framed up in the office. And so we decided that we would do that. And this was, again, probably 10 or 15 years ago before the time of you know, the ubiquity of, of cell phones. And so we have in our lobby now pictures of the families and the pets of each one of our staff people. Well, what's tremendous about it is when we have people who visit in the office, they can go, oh, that's my lawyer and he's got a dog or there's my paralegal and you know she's she's got a baby that it. It helped on that identification, but what's most important to us is it's in the hallway that leads to our ad- administrative offices. So every time we pass that hallway, you are reminded that for everything you do that affects an employee, it's affecting that whole family. So it's a great way sort of to remind us of the impact every time we're making a decision about benefits or days off or you know, anything to the benefit of the staff or the detriment of the staff, what impact it's having, even even all the way down to the pits. The other thing that I was going to mention, and this is one of my, my favorites, C12 also has a national conference every other year. And about seven or eight years ago, I went to one and was listening to a restaurateur from Dallas. And he talked about how he had billboards that he put up at Christmas that had a Christmas theme to it. And, you know, we as advertising lawyers have some billboards in our area. And my the person who was running our, our marketing at the time was also a C-12 member. And we were sitting in a meeting one day and I said, hey, Andy, how about if we replace this billboard that we've got out on Highway 85 with a, with a Christmas message, with, a, with a, a religious message? And during the meeting, he sketched something out. And we ended up putting that up that Christmas. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I wonder what's going to happen. You know, are we going to get hate phone calls? Yeah, you really don't know. Picketing. We had no idea. I mean, you don't have the cross on your website or anything, do you? Or or do you? uh, No, no, but kind of close at places. Yeah, okay, okay. But, But what he designed was sort of desert and then the camels and the wise men and then a star on it. And then it said joy to the world. And then because of, of requirements for North Carolina Bar, we had to put our name on it. So we right. just put it in kind of a small sure. left-hand corner. We started getting phone calls thanking us for the billboard. You're kidding. No. We had one church in a little town in North Carolina where 30 members of the church signed a letter thanking us for putting the billboard up. Now, is that what we expected? Absolutely not. Would I ever thought of that if I hadn't heard this restaurateur from Texas do that? And now what's the amazing thing that's happened? We replace our sign out front with that same sign every Christmas. Other C-12 members 
also buy their own billboards or they come together and put a pool of money together. So in our county, I think we had 17 billboards with a Christian theme last year and that people are starting to see them. And then I'll tell you something really cool. Next door to us, I have an orthopedic surgeon who's a great Christian guy. And so I told you we replace our sign. that So it says joy to the world. Well, he replaces his sign with something that says, for the Lord has come. And so when you ride up our block, you wow. can see those two in, in sequence, even though he's not a member of C12. So the ramifications are like throwing that, that little stone in the pond and just watching it go. That's amazing. And I think that's going to, I'm embarrassed to say that it surprises me uh, mm-hmm. how good the reaction was to that. And it, it sounded like it surprised you, frankly, but I, I love the boldness. And I think uh, you know, I'm 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 sure in Lee Strobel Ministries, and so I'm around uh, these amazing evangelists. I, I I aspire to be better at that, and I've learned a lot from Lee and Mark Middleberg and, and and those folks. But one of the things they've really drilled into me is that people are way more open to spiritual discussions than maybe we perceive. So I think in this and this isn't, I don't think, a political statement or anything, just in this politically correct environment where we don't want to offend anyone, I think maybe we swing that pendulum too far to one side where we don't even show who we are. Right. And if people don't want to engage, that's okay. That's their choice. It's not offensive to me, right. or I don't even think to people who aren't believers, you know, to just be school, who you are. You know. Even in law school, you know, we were told, mm. don't put anything on your resume that would indicate what political party you are or things that, that would be extracurricular activities that might be offensive. And what C12 has helped me understand is it's okay to be offensive, that I'd rather put it out there. And, you know, we've, we're in the process of redoing our website, but for, you know, 10 plus years, we've had a personal testimony of mine. On, but I would have never had the courage to do that. If I hadn't been in that in those rooms on a regular basis and having somebody sort of say, well, why won't you do that? Why do you want there to be another enough evidence out there in the world to convict you of being a Christian? And I want the answer to be yes. I, I just I think that's such a powerful statement again in this environment. And, you know, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom, of course, is an organization that does a lot of coaching for business owners like you and me. And, you know, I mean, heck, you are a lawyer. I mean, I mean, what I've been learning from them is that the bolder you are, frankly, and putting it in your corporate documents, if if you, you know, like we've got God in our vision statement, well, the bolder you are inside the company and, and having that proof, if you were in a court of law, and someone was going to convict you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence? I mean, that, that is actually kind of a, a good way to look at it. But actually, the bolder you are, the more you're protected. Is, is that kind of the viewpoint? I, I think so. You know, just over time, we have tried to be increasingly more overt in what we, what we say about ourselves. You know, we have recently sent out a newsletter that we, we say we're a Christian-led law firm. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that repels some people, but it attracts others. And why it's important for us is I, I, I want to be held accountable. If we're doing something that's inconsistent with the way Christ would live, I, I want somebody to bring it to our attention. 
You know, I tell people we can't leave the shopping cart out in the middle of the parking lot at the grocery store because people would love to talk badly about lawyers or law firms and say it's consistent with what they believe. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to be that kind of witness for uh, the legal profession. You know, justice is God's idea to begin with. He started it. And and we want to make sure that we are doing right by him. So our mission statement is to seek justice, give generously and love lavishly. That is not your typical law firm mission statement, but that's what we have have chosen and what we're trying to live by. Well, I love that. It's it's very different, very refreshing. And one of the things that, that we like to say in the wealth management business is, and I think just in society in general, if you show me your calendar and your checkbook, I don't even need to know you. I, I know what you believe. <laughs> Chris, and, that's uh, exactly right. Sometimes I call it the third conversion. I, I, I did I did a talk last week, and I and I, I called it the third conversion. There's the head conversion of belief, the heart conversion, maybe that the Holy Spirit, not maybe, but that the Holy Spirit does, and then there's the third conversion, which is the wallet conversion. So my understanding is that you you have had the wallet conversion, and and frankly, we were talking about time being the other measure. Frankly, most lawyers sell their time. I mean, you still you only have so many hours in the day, even if it's on contingency. So time is important, how you allocate your time. So talk about at the law firm now, how you've chosen to do some of that, that wallet and time conversion. Well, it, it's a little unique. And so I, I hope everybody will have mercy on the story I'm getting ready to tell you. But I was riding to work one day, minding my own business. And the Lord doesn't talk to me in like large sentences or frankly, very frequently. But every now and then I'll hear something in my head that I wasn't asking for, and I know that I need to think about it. And I was almost to our office, and I heard in my head, I am a substitutionary God. And I was thinking, okay, I've got, I was thinking about the grocery list again. I have no idea where that came from, so I probably need to think about it. And we were, uh, I guess, about six or seven years into Ward Black Law at the time. And what I have, what I believe when I started reflecting on it is that, yes, God is a God of substitution. You know, in the Old Testament, we hear about the substitution of animals and crops. In the New Testament, we have the clear substitution of Jesus Christ for who we are. So, yes, he is a God of substitution. And, I, and I've tied ever since I think I had my first job. And I really feel like I've had this just, I mean, well, you've heard a couple of things about what I've gotten to do. I have been blessed beyond measure in the opportunities that I've I've had over my lifetime. And I think at least in a, some small part, it's because I've tried to be faithful with my money. But then I employ a whole lot of people, many of whom I know do not give any money to any institution, much less a church. They may not even be believers. They They just behave differently than I do. So the only thing that I could come up with about how do I apply I am a substitutionary God was to conclude that what the Lord wanted the law firm to do was to tithe on our gross revenue. And the reason why I came up with that was because if we tithe on our gross revenue, I am by definition tithing for every employee Mm. on their salary, on their benefits, on their 401k. So at least 10% is going out into, into, the, into the world. 
So you remember I told you about my my COO, the one, the Lean Six Sigma yeah. engineer. So this was in December. She comes into my office. I said, I need to talk to you. I said, well, here's what the Lord said, and here's what I think I what what I think the Lord's telling us to do. And and she started nodding and she said, Well, you know, I've about finished the budget for next year. You know, I've budgeted a profit finally. I think we'll be able to do that. And I said, Rhonda, I don't mean the profit, I mean the gross. And she swallowed real hard and she nodded and she said, Okay, okay, I'll go think about that. She went out in the hallway, picked up her cell phone, called her husband, and told him I had lost my mind. <laughs> and and then what we did was we formed what we called a tithe committee, not made of lawyers, but made of administrative t- staff who I knew were spiritually aligned with what I thought the Lord was trying to get us to accomplish. We came up with a plan that we would try to identify best-in-class nonprofits locally, regionally, and internationally, and that we would take 10% of our, our gross every month, move it into a separate account, be completely aligned on who we wanted to give to, and then we would give that money away under the following caveats. We did not want it to be marketing money. We did not just want it to be some glorified way for our name to get on something, but we committed that we would do it anonymously, that we would not let the nonprofits use our name on any wall or in any letter but that we wanted and, in fact, would send a letter to the nonprofit saying, we ask you to keep our identity anonymous because we want God to get the glory in this, not the law firm. So what was miraculously happening each month was we were having that 10% to give away. Now, understand in the seven years prior to that, we never had even 3% profit. So for all of a sudden, us to be able to give away 10% and never have anybody not get their salary or not have their benefits played, it was an amazing thing to watch. So a year passes and my, my, my comptroller, my office manager comes to Rhonda and says, I'd like to join the TIE team. And Rhonda said, well, why do you want to do that, Wendy? And she said, I've worked here almost 20 years. I've written the checks every month those 20 years. I saw what the Lord did last year, and it was impossible in our flesh. And I want to be a part of what he's doing. So that's why I want to join the tithe team. And so now she's actually the manager of our tithe team. Ten years have passed. The Lord has allowed us to do this every single month. After the second year, we decided that we had to do better and more. And, you know, we're big strategic planning people. You know, we are EOS folks. Mm -hmm. We're pretty serious about, you know, how we we do our business. So we want to make sure that we're doing our philanthropy with the same kind of strategic planning that we're operating our law firm. We don't want to be sloppy in what we're doing with the Lord's money. But we were really challenged by a couple of things, one of which was the parable of the talents, because, you know, the, the return is doubling money. Now, Jeff, you may be a really good manager, but to be able to double somebody's money in any period of time, it's not easy to do in the flesh. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't figure out what would the Lord have us do to be able to double our money that we're giving away. And so what the group came up with was to start making our, our contributions to nonprofits match money. 
And so we ask the nonprofits to use our money as a match and to report back to us. And that's allowed us to double our money and in some instances do much greater than that. And then the categories we use are predominantly the ones from Matthew 25. Hungry, thirsty, jailed, sick, strangers, naked. We add in widows and orphans and Levites from the Old Testament. We graph against those categories. We look at, you know, what is the highest and best use of this little bit of money that we have? For us, it's a lot. For lots of your listeners, it may not be much at all. But if you give away 10% over 10 years, you've given away an entire year's worth of revenue. It adds up in amazing ways. And so it's just blessed our socks off to be a part of this. We thought we were helping other nonprofits, but the truth is it's changed us. I mean, what a, what a story. There's so many good principles in there of, I mean, I just think of, you know, God's word. He doesn't tell us to test him in many things, but he tells us to test him in the tithing. And, yep. uh, and he said three. what would happen, right? We will open up the windows of heaven, and we're seeing it happen all the time. And it I mean, doesn't I, necessarily mean finances. It's just in that's right. in relationships and hearing about miracles all the time. We get our socks just blessed off, connecting other nonprofits that you'll hear about one who's got this issue, and we'll say, let me introduce you to the executive director of this one. They've got the same issue, and it's just it's just been so refreshing. And, and then the effect the giving has, and I know you weren't doing it for this purpose, but the effect it has on the giver, not just the recipient. And you've talked about some of the impact on your employees, you know, who it sounds like all participate because, I mean, you have the right to just designate it if you want to, but you've chosen to let them participate as well. It sounds like that's really been a, have you seen that shift in culture? Yes. Um, You know, originally, we probably had a number of people here that were almost hostile to the concept. Wow. You know, that that because, you know, theoretically, that money could have been given to them instead of given away. So it's also kind of allowed us to have the culture shift over time and people have changed. And then almost everybody has some kind of, um, well, Frederick Buechner died this week, the amazing theologian. And, you know, one of the things that he said was that your calling is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And I've heard somebody say, and frankly, it may be Lee Strobel, to say that, you know, if you see somebody somewhere in extremis and you say somebody should do something, that somebody's probably you, that that means that's really gotten in your craw and that you need to be someone to address it. Well, you know, I mentioned about the tithe team. So that group was getting to interact with the nonprofits all the time. And we had to figure out how do you pull that into the whole firm? And so one of the things that we do once a quarter is what we we have what we call a tithe lunch. And we invite about six or seven executive directors from the nonprofits that we're supporting and the members of the staff. And we just do a big Zoom and let the nonprofits talk to each other and explain what they do and some of their wins and some of their losses. And then that's been a really remarkable way to let our staff know about what what we're investing in. And almost everyone picks out something that really makes a difference to them. One time we did a tour at an urban ministries here, 
And one of our staff noticed that there were no children there. And they said, well, where do the homeless children live? And the executive director said, well, they can't stay here. We have people with psychiatric issues and maybe sexual assault issues. And then that helped us realize that there were very few resources in our town that would hold homeless families. So that put us on a search to try to identify nonprofits in that space. So few people even think about jailed ministries. We work with some amazing ministries that support prisoners, but we had to do it with intentionality because it was not something that we were doing naturally. I could, you know, what's so clear is your passion really comes through. It's really obvious to me, and I'm sure many of those on a treadmill or in their car listening that, you know, that God really did give you that message. And one of the things we talk about when you're trying to listen to God and what he wants you to do, you know, it's what breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I can tell that this is a, a, a very big and meaningful part of your life and, and, and the staff's life and the, your teammates. And so I could go for hours, but we, we've, we've got to probably wrap it up. And so one of the things that we always like to ask at the end, as you know, of, of this podcast is some practical tip for another sort of business owner to business owner. You know, somebody's walking down the street listening to this and says, boy, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking as a little numbers math guy, if you give 10% off the top, heck, you said 3% margins. If you only had 20% margins, it'd be half of the profits, frankly. Right. So it's maybe somebody saying, well, man, that's, whew, that's more than I could think I could do right now. But what would be one little steps that the, the, the person walking down the street that's feeling a little conviction about doing something a little more generous in their business, what's a step they could take? Well, one thing they could do is they could ask their employees, what's a problem in either the local community or the world that that breaks their heart? Yeah. And you might find that there's commonality there and that maybe you could pick out one project, one nonprofit to support. It's probably one of our favorite examples is International Cooperating Ministries out of Virginia. They build churches and hope centers around the world. It has been such an amazing thing for our staff to be able to see that you can take, say, $15,000 and build a church in another country that will last for generations, whereas in my town, you can't take $15,000 and renovate a restaurant. Right. So if I'm trying to make highest and best use, and then for them to be able to see the building and see the people and see the children, that tangibility, that ability to be able to say, look here, here's something we did and that we were working today that helped pay for this building really has a remarkable impact on the staff. You know, you hear companies now saying we need to make sure that people know that we're involved in something for more than the money. There there are companies looking for ways to get out there and and to be able to show that they're interested in the environment or people or food programs or whatever. It's the perfect time for all business owners. Do it. Do it for the business reason. If you don't want to do it for the pure philanthropy of it, it's good business practice. But for us, we're living proof that we're better off for it. And that was not why we did it to start. Well, that is fantastic. Just pick one, one nonprofit that maybe you could come around together and do something together and, and, and watch, watch what God does with it, with that mustard seed. So that's a great 
place to end it. And I just want to thank Janet Black for her time today. Janet, thanks so much for being with us. It was my pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on this week's edition of the Generous Business Owner Podcast. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.